Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought-provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human-centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. Last four years, organizations have stressed tests on their way to adapt to change and there are, because there are factors that are out of their control. And this has a name, it's called organizational resilience. So if you want a description, huh, is the capacity to absorb stress, recover critical functionality and thrive in highly altered circumstances. And also it has become a key indicator of a company's overall health. So how much companies can, uh, can adapt. Today, my guest is Sarah Calmeta, uh, and we're going to be talking specifically about how to improve resilience in organizations and be the master of uncertainty. Now, Sarah is mainly known as the pivoter. She is a change and resilience wizard for organizations and individuals. Sarah, I love your nickname, the pivoter, but Thank you. I want to know two things. First of all, in your own words, what does it mean to pivot? And I find that, that there is a little bit of correlation with your personal stories. I don't want to, and I mentioned to you, I don't want to tell your story because I'm going to mess it up because it is amazingly complex and amazingly <laughs> inspiring. So can you tell me if that the, 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 the nickname, the pivoter has to do with your own personal life? And then, of course, what does it mean to pivot in life? Yes, absolutely. Well, Ivan, thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. I think this is a, a topic that really came to light in recent times, but really resilience is something that we've always needed, right? And, and what it really is, is that ability to bounce back and resilient organizations and resilient people, they don't wallow in self-pity or, oh my gosh, this is so hard. What they do is they have awareness of what's going on around them. They make a decision to move forward despite the environment changing and they try new pathways. And so to be able to pivot, we have to be open and we have to be aware. But most people go through life with the blinders on, right? They're in a race like a horse. They, they don't know what's going on to either side. Uh, and they're just going straight for the goal. And sometimes uh, that works, of course, all strategies work, but it may not be the best strategy. Um, and so, yes, Sarah the Pivoter is a nickname moniker that I've received for myself uh, because my company's name is Pivot Point International. Pivot mm -hmm. really relates to change. We, we know this word from recent years. And I got my inspiration from Rosie the Riveter. So she was the iconic World War II image wearing a bandana going like this, right? You know, telling, inspiring women to come to the workforce. And the Riveter part is because they were putting rivets on airplanes to support the war effort. And uh, I've grown up with aviation in my life. I've loved it since I was a little girl. Uh, my first two words were for star and airplanes. So I thought, okay, well, what's going to stick? What's going to help people when they're going through change? What can be the icon for them? And so that's how Sarah the Pivoter was born. 
And through my own life story, there's been many pivots. And I'm sure for everyone listening out there, you've also had many pivots. And so as I'm speaking, I want you to think about those changes in your life that you've gone through, not just the big ones, right? We we know that there's pivots and change that occurs when we change jobs, um, when we get married, when we get divorced, when, when there's a birth or a death, you know, all of these things bring in and usher change. But the micro pivots are what are really important. And that's how we build the foundation for the big ones. So I want you to think about all the small changes that it take place in your days and your life. And as I'm telling my story, think about how that might apply to your situation. So when I was young, uh, I was a figure skater and my goal, my horse race was to go to the Olympics. And I trained, I was there from 5 a.m. till 7.30 a.m. before school. I change in the car, get to school, and then after school, go back for another two, three hours. I was having, um, you know, coaching sessions. I was working with a choreographer for my, my programs on the ice. And in the summer, I was there from 7 a.m. until 6 p.m. every single day, barring the weekend. And so my ambition was, you know, to be the next Tara Lipinski and go to the Olympics at a really young age and, and make it. And unfortunately, I suffered some extensive knee injuries and some uh, other injuries that required me to make a decision if I would continue with the training and face, you know, double knee surgery at age 13, 14 years old, and obviously impact the rest of my life. Uh, or choose to pivot and reapply that energy and focus into another arena. And I had also, um, you know, my, my whole life growing up, I thought I would be this figure skater. I would aim for gold. I'd be, you know, going to the Olympics. And then once I would retire in my mid twenties, I would become a figure skating coach. You know, I had it all mapped out. Uh, and of course that did not happen. <laughs> so um, I, I had a conversation with my mom and while I still love skating, I had slowly started to lose the passion for it. Um, the, the knees injuries were to the point where one week I couldn't even walk, couldn't get out of bed. The pain was too great. And I have quite a high pain tolerance. So for me to not be able to move like that, it meant it was pretty severe. And so I decided, you know, we were moving as a family to Arizona uh, from Chicago. So a lot of ice skating and winter sports in, in the city of Chicago but in Arizona, we were moving to Sedona, which is a beautiful place, but the nearest ice rink was 45 minutes away and the nearest competitive ice rink was two hours away. I, so if I, I wanted to continue down the track, I would also need to go live by myself and train, be isolated away from my family in order to continue this goal and also face you know, the, the, the knee surgery and things like that because I was one fall away from just totally destroying my knees. So I made the decision, uh, which was very difficult, to stop skating. And for a while, I, I didn't really know what to put my energy into. And I mentioned before that I had always loved aviation. And so my mom found this program called the Civil Air Patrol. It's an auxiliary Air Force type of program where when you're in high school, You'll go once a week after school for a few hours, and you'll learn about aviation, search and rescue, how to fly, 
Um, you will also then, uh, you know, you wear a uniform and you, you learn all the same discipline that you would learn if you were joining the military. So obviously the intention there is to join the Air Force afterwards. And uh, I did this program throughout my high school years. I loved it. Um, we got to go to the air base, Luke Air Force Base down in, in Tucson. Uh, I got to go in a G4 simulator, you know, so all of a sudden now my new goal was to be a fighter pilot. Uh, and this is what I wanted to do. Uh, I really enjoyed flying, but if I'm honest, I get a bit bored after 15, 20 minutes, you know, and looking at the scenery from above, it's great, it's exciting. But I look to people to my left and my right who would literally eat ramen every day just to save up an extra $60 for the end of the month to fly for one more hour. I didn't have that same level. So I thought, you know, the career path of a pilot and this type of lifestyle is, is not for me. But if I'm a fighter pilot, that's adrenaline, that's exciting, you know, that's what I'll go for. Uh, so I received my second lieutenant in the Civil Air Patrol program and uh, had a, a full ride scholarship to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in exchange for um, being with the military, the Air Force for 11 years uh, to get a flight slot. However, I did receive some advice because my eyesight uh, was was not great. <laughs> I, I have had LASIK surgery since then. Uh, but because of that, I was, you know, essentially told, which I completely understand, if it was me and another candidate and we were exactly even in every category, but they had perfect eyesight, they would get chosen over me because there's less investment and there's less risk after having a surgery, right? Um, and so I, I, again, thought and weighed my pros and cons. Well, I don't really want to give 11 years if I don't get the fighter slot, if there, that chance is reduced. And I, you know, I mean, an A-10 is cool. A C-130 is super cool as well. But again, my flying passion was not there. So I decided to still go to Embry-Riddle, again, my next pivot. Uh, and I chose an aviation business degree. And I chose this for the purpose of understanding business, but being able to be around the airplanes in the aviation industry and then if it so happened that I decided I didn't like airplanes anymore, which, I mean, that not, never really happens. Talk to anyone in aviation. It's like, it's the original virus, right? Once you have it, it's in your blood. And um, I, at least I'd have a business degree, right? And I could pivot into something else. So someone pointed out to me recently that I was pivoting before I was pivoting uh, with that decision. And I went to school. I, I loved it. I loved being around aviation, being around the airplanes. Uh, I then wrote a strategic management plan for a local helicopter flight school, was hired. They, they made a role for me. So imagine I'm 20 years old. I graduated when I was 20. Somebody's made a job for me. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> right. And I was on top of the world. And then I graduated in 2008, mind you. So Fast forward, global financial crisis, of course, companies had to shrink. So I, I lost my position after three, four months of being there because it wasn't necessary, right? And I still remember my mentor, Rick Gibson, who still teaches at the Prescott campus of Embry-Riddle. He said to me, Sarah, this is the best thing that could have ever happened to you, especially now. It's like, you're just starting your career you are going to have a leg up on everybody else who has been working 20, 30 years because when they experience something like this, their whole world is going to crumble because they don't know how to handle change. He's like, you are lucky. 
And at first, of course, I was like, no, he's just trying to make me feel better, right? What does yeah. he know? Of course, he knows a lot more than I do. And, um, you know, I, I still remembered that though, because of, in the beginning, it was this awful feeling, like I failed, like I would never do anything great again. And it was over, you know, who would hire me because this embarrassing thing happened. And of course, looking back, that's absolutely absurd and ridiculous, right? But that's how I felt. And, you know, it was like up high and then down low. So it's that extreme. Most people live in the extremes of really, really good or really, really bad. And we're constantly just cycling between the two, right? Uh, so I then found a job with an aircraft management company based in Los Angeles. They hired me because I had the language capability. I studied Mandarin as a minor in uh, school. And I had aircraft in Singapore and Hong Kong. So I went for the interview, thought it was cool, had never heard about business aviation, corporate aviation, private jets before, which is interesting because I went to an aeronautical school. But the industry represents 1% of all of aviation. So there's less opportunity, right? It's not like the Boeings or the Airbus or the United that can come to a school fair and hire hundreds of people. And so even though there was an FBO, a fixed-based operator on the field, and I saw these smaller airplanes coming in and out, it never occurred to me that there was this whole ecosystem, this whole world in that space. Mm. And this now I had the, the door in. And since then, that was 15 years ago. And yeah, I've been in the industry ever since, worked primarily for aircraft management companies. I got sent to Singapore where I was able to help open up the office and train the team because of that language capability, decided I loved Asia and stayed. So I was in Asia for 13 years after Singapore. Uh, I was in mainland China for a year and a half, and then I went to Hong Kong for about 10 years. Now I'm back in the US, I'm in Austin, Texas. And that was the next pivot, the big pivot, because I uh, came here for a two month trip to visit family. Hong Kong had a three week hotel quarantine that you had to pay for. Um, last year. And so I thought if I'm going to go visit people, it needs to be like for a significant period of time. But then while I was here, Hong Kong shut the border from the US and seven other countries. I remember that. And so, remember. yeah. And so it was this weird sensation. It was um, very, I don't even know what word to use. It was um, very surreal, you know, because I, I was on this adventure, on this trip that then turned into just my life. And I decided instead of spending six weeks of my life in a hotel versus um, six weeks of traveling, I mean, the cost was $10,000 to get back to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So I, I did the math and thought, okay, six weeks in a hotel, 10 grand, or more like six months of traveling and enjoying the world, right? And so I chose the latter. Six months extended into you know a 14-month living out of two suitcases, operation, traveling all around the US. I went to Australia and Mexico and had a great time. I was pivoting all over the place, right? Really living up to my name, showing people how you could, you know, change and, and live life this way. Um, and I fell in love with Austin in the process. I came here a couple of times, met a really great group of people and uh, felt that energy of Hong Kong, but yet not the hectic underlying energy that never sleeps, right? Hong Kong is uh, Asia's New York City. It's probably New York City on steroids in terms of how fast it moves, right? And I realized 
that this was a great landing spot. And so um, I chose to come here. Uh, we moved a couple months ago, and uh, this is now the new home base. Sarah, let me recap if we have lost some people about sure. the story. So we have ice skating, we have aviation, we have the fact that you have been moving around the world. Um, and it seems to me so that the description of what you, this, your story, it is of someone who is open to change and that despite the fact that you may have in your in the road of your focus of that moment, you have been able to accept, which is, by the way, one of the hardest things ever because we are formatted by society, our parents about, hey, you do engineering, you go for it, you finish, eh? So um, to, to accept and move on and do the best that you can with the opportunities, but given, given the fact that you are open to, to size the opportunities, you find new things to, that for you to have an exceptional life. Because if you had focus on one path, you just have like what we call a standard life. And sometimes yes. regrets instead of putting the bar up there and say, what can I do given the, the, the current situation? Now, the part that is quite interesting is that, and it's almost contradicting to, uh, with, uh, with our society is that we are always told, build the mindset to get things done. So go into that mm -hmm. direction, be a, the best ice skater, be the Olympic, uh, the next Olympic uh, medal, gold medal. Um, and from the other side, the, there is a huge wealth of opportunity into the pivoting area because mm -hmm. then you are more accepting of opportunities and you can size them uh, in a better way. And by the way, that produces in our brain certain endorphins that make us happier to have an exceptional yes. life because we are open to, to discovery, to discovery. We are not set up with rules that are going to, to make us like fully upset with emotions because things didn't go the right way. So how mm. do we balance between this story about, hey, build your mindset and be focused and be a pivoter? How can we do that? <laughs> That's a great question. And I, I love that you just used the word discovery because I used to run a program in Asia called ASBA Discovery. It was for the Asian Business Aviation Association. And it was helping people of all ages, we were going into like primary school, all the way to postgraduate, discover careers in aviation and the opportunities and possibilities that exist. And now in my own business, one of the offers that I have is called the Discovery Experience. And it's this year-long container where we are diving in and really discovering things about you that are dormant. Because we all have passions and um, things that we wanted to do, but because of society or our parents or the culture or our partner or our kids or whatever other constraint we've put on ourselves, we've decided to shut that door. We decided we didn't have what it took and we decided to go and play safe, right? Let me just stick to what I know. And so there's a pro and con to both, right? To being a pivoter and always open to change, you have to really be disciplined with your focus and you have to really be uh, conscious of the decisions that you're making, really weighing the pros and cons 
and not just going on impulse. Oh, I feel like this today. I feel like this today. You can do that for a period of time, but not forever because that is very uh, energy intensive. And it's also, you know, human beings need some sort of stability. Now we all have different personality types, of course, but if you're not staying consistent with any one thing, you will not have results and you will constantly be in this flux of change. Now, the other side, right? If, if we have that stability, then that's when we start to create the walls. We build this house with the, the construct and all the rules for being happy, right? And we put these rules in place. Like I will be happy when I have a million dollars or I will be successful when I become a VP, right? And we, we create all these um, very arbitrary goals because we think that's what we're supposed to do right? Oh, I'm supposed to get married and buy a house and have three kids. And, you know, um, all of them should be grade A students and, you know, playing in sport. And if they're not, I'm a failure, right? Like what, where does that even come from? Obviously they're their own individual being, but yet this is the narrative. And, and we look at history, the course of history, and we look at the different rights of different groups of people, of women and men, and that whole process, you know, we, have come a long way, but each generation has their own idea of success, right? And what does that mean? So what I invite people to do <clears throat> is to find something that works for them. This is not a, a balancing act. I don't believe in work-life balance. I don't believe in balancing between being a pivoter and being stable because balance indicates you're constantly chasing equilibrium, hmm. but it's not equilibrium because for some people, the work is their, is their passion, it's their love, it's their greatest joy. And their 100% might be, or excuse me, their 70% might be your 150%. But to them, that's their normal. They're not overexerting themselves. They're not overwhelmed. So we all operate at these different speeds. So finding what's your speed, what are your requirements, what are your needs, what needs do you have to have met? And I'm not talking about food and shelter and water and air. I mean, you know, is recognition a need for you? Is learning a need? Is kindness and respect? What are those things for you that establish the baseline and foundation for which you build upon? And those are called your values. And putting them into action, using them like verbs and finding this unique formula for you, right? And how do we do that? Through trial and error. Life is just a great science experiment. Just imagine that, you know, you're in seventh grade science class again, and you're figuring out what that green slime does when you add this to it, when you add that to it, you know, maybe it explodes in your face or maybe it, you know, turns into a different shape and that's what you're doing with your life. And so when you can look at it more like that as a game, you can be curious and you can be more open. So my biggest invitation for anyone that's on this journey that wants to build their resilience and be open to new opportunity even though they might be scared about the how and the what, just look at life with the word and. I am scared and I am willing to look at this opportunity. I don't know what to do yet and I'm willing to learn, hmm. right? Instead of saying, or I can have this or that, it's and. So when you can look at yes and, uh, theater, improv, uh, people in the arts space know this as well. Just say yes and add the, the next part. 
yes. And I need to learn how to do this, right? The next time your boss says, hey, I have this project. Would you like to do it? Yes. And I will need support because this is a new skill for me. Great. So start asking yourself, how can I? Rather than starting with, I can't. Great. Hey, by the way, some, some stories that has stayed with me, that have stayed with me, is this concept. And, and I think it is good to clarify it. So pivoting, it, it is a process. So it yes. is a structured, systematic process that needs discipline. And that I, I'm stealing exactly your words because there is so much confusion that, yes, because I'm trying new things, it is something like going with the flow. No, it's not mm. going with the flow. It's the opposite. You need to be <laughs> in control. That's number one. The number two thing is about this concept of constant iteration. So uh, we, we um, how do you call it? Like finding your finding your needs and going and trying validating with data if that was the good thing and do constant iteration so that you can every time learn a new thing because you cannot have self awareness by just thinking alone in front of Netflix. You have to, <laughs> sorry I have right. to use the Netflix story, <laughs> but but you you need to be able to explain experience experiment to have a control environment when you are experimenting and validating with data if this is really what we want because neither you or me we can we have got to the stage where we are today without doing a hundred mistakes or maybe a thousand right <laughs> yeah it's all about learning and putting into practice you know a lot of us stay up here we're very cerebral we intellectualize concepts yeah. But we need to take action. <clears throat> when we take action, we learn. We learn, yes, I like this. No, I don't. How can I be better? Right? And so looking back, you know, it's not about shaming what you've done in the past or saying, oh, I did the wrong thing because I wasn't open or this. <clears throat> it's you've done great up until this point because you're here. You're still alive, right? You've you've <laughs> got all these things going for you. Look at the things that are going right how can we do it better, right? It's it's a layered process. And so every time we learn something, we add, you know, we go to the next level. Think like a video game, right? Mm. Level one is pretty easy. You can kill the boss, like one hit with the sword or one shot with a gun, right? Whatever game you're playing. <laughs> and it's like, cool, I'm level two now. Now all of a sudden you get to level kind of eight or nine and you're going, hey, this is a lot harder. I need to be more strategic. I need to, you know, have some tools with me and have extra resources and I need to coordinate with other people because I can't do it on my own. It's the same thing in life, right? You might have learned a concept 20 years ago when you did your business or your management degree, right? Guess what? The world has changed in 20 years. People have changed. We've evolved. We've gone to the next level. Communication has changed, right? What you learned even last year in school or in your program is going to be somewhat obsolete, right? So it is not a, here's my goal. This is what I go for. And I've learned this one thing. This is what I do forever. It's how can I continue to expand this and make it my own? How do I continue to add layers so that when I look back, I realize, hey, I've just been going up a staircase that's a spiral. So even though it looks like I'm at the same spot I was two years ago, I have a bit of a higher view and mm -hmm. I can see more and I know more now. So yes, it's the same 
type of situation, but you can handle it a lot differently. Now, I want to get back to the to the core of the uh, of our discussion. So we have been talking about the individual, but mm -hmm. organizations is almost like an individual. They have certain characteristics, <laughs> certain personality. We call it culture. We we have behaviors yes. that that we do. Um, so and regarding organizations, so we have we went through a phase that has been quite critical for many organizations especially during the, uh, the times of COVID and where they needed to be uh, to adapt quickly to change. Business yes. models have been changing. New skills had to be taken because, and and we are not out of that because the, the, we also noticed that there was a lot of mistakes that were done in the past, especially regarding how leaders in organizations are able to empathize that was more visible during the COVID times because you were in remote mode and, and you weren't used to empathize already in the office. How can you empathize through uh, through Zoom? So we have discovered that <laughs> a, a, a can full of worms, we have <laughs> organizations yes. needed to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to adapt. Do you have, with the experience that you have got with organizations around the world, do you have examples where organizations fail to adapt to unexpected situations. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, in business aviation, we deal with the unexpected every single day because the whole point of the industry is to have an aircraft that you can fly to other airports that airlines don't go to, right? So this is how we do search and rescue. We, we deliver aid, organ donation, you know, getting to a small airport closer to the plant factory, et cetera. So we are dealing with constant change all the time. Even so, I saw many organizations um, have to shrink because their business model was so narrow mm. that they couldn't adapt to anything else in that time. However, there were other organizations that were able to digitize products or come up with solutions very quickly and a lot of those were in the um, kind of services space. So that was, you know, a large part of what they were doing already, looking at what does the market need and how do I provide that? Mm. And so, um, you know, and, and this was not just in aviation. In Hong Kong, I saw a lot of companies, you know, especially brick and mortar, right? Um, you know, the, the restaurant businesses, et cetera. Now, I saw something quite unique in Hong Kong where very quickly because we you know, we, we had a containment, if you will, with that three-week quarantine. So we were still able to go out and, and do things, but we, we would have restrictions like we could only go out to eat at a restaurant until lunchtime. And then everything after that, you know, you couldn't go out to eat at dinner and, you know, the reasoning and thought logic behind that, not so sure. But anyways, um, so what did a lot of these restaurants do? They still kept their staff and they pivoted to having takeout and delivery. Mm -hmm. And how can we bring this experience to your home? How can we give you that same quality of food, right? Uh, some of the restaurants uh, in the hotels, what they were doing is saying, hey, come book a room for a night, and we're going to give you the experience that you would have at the restaurant, right? So mm -hmm. they're bypassing the restaurant rule by somebody coming and staying at the hotel. So they're still able to earn revenue, right? So there were a lot of people that were so, this is what I do. This is all I do. Can't do it. 
And then there were others that were really quick to say, hey, how can I still deliver this service to my customers? Whether that was a restaurant or a personal trainer or an investment banker, a real estate agent, a lot of people you saw there were there people who were very quick to act. Let me come up with something that I can still deliver with the new constraints, right? And then there were the other people who were going, oh my God, all these constraints, I can't do my job now. It's not going to work. And they were unwilling to accept the circumstances that they were being given. And they stuck to this, this is what it needs to look like in this box. And if it's not in that box, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. So challenging yourself again, how can I, even when the environment changes, because guess what? It changes all the time. I mean, the sun comes up, it goes down. We have different seasons. We have different weather. But we don't sit, you know, inside and go, oh, my God, it's raining. I can't go outside. We Hmm. take an umbrella, right? We find a tool that helps us not get as wet as if we didn't have it. And we go about our day. Now, of course, there might be some, you know, oh, I don't want I don't want it to rain. But it's not the end of the world. And, you know, and the whole world doesn't come to a grinding halt because of it. So finding for yourself, what what are the things that you think you need in order to succeed? as an organization? And what are the things that you haven't considered? Now, it's really hard to do that when you're in it, when you're in the thick of all of these things. So bringing in different team members from different departments, you know, having regular brainstorming situations about change and what are some opportunities. It's not, let me set my goal in January and we work towards it until December. It's every month checking in having those regular touch points. Are we still on track? Is there new information? What are the things that we're missing? What are our competitors doing? And from there, you're building a resilient workforce because you're teaching people how to be open to that change and how to work with different constraints rather than this is what we do and that's it and just do as I say, right? Sarah, I love your example because it allows also to discuss about something that where a lot of leaders do an exercise of oversimplification. They think that, okay, the solution is innovation. I mean, Mm -hmm. they can decide that your story about uh, the restaurants linking together with the hotels, that was innovation. But it Mm -hmm. is not. It is about adaptability. adaptability. That means that when there is a case of extreme change, people are overstressed, they, 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 there is a lot of uncertainty. Then they get a stress and it's very tough to generate good ideas while you are in on the stress if they haven't been prepared to, for this adaptability. That's why I like the fact that you mentioned that it's not a one-off exercise like where we brainstorm together during one day and we will come up with this idea. Is that is that this recurrent uh, exercise that we do together where we don't over stress in order to come up with a with a solution. So the idea of adaptability and preparing the workforce for change is more important in order to is super important in order to be innovative. It cannot come just out of uh, out of the blue. Yes. Um, then uh, and, and in fact I remember that I read some story that there are three things that organizations need in order to get stuff done in the in the uh, at, at work so they need to have uh, people prepared for when things go normal like organizational routines that they do in a day-to-day basis 
then they need to have like, uh, in order to, when there is a little bit of uncertainty, they need to have like a couple of rules of thumb to, to, to work things a little bit better, to have some rules that in case of uncertainty, you can apply. Like I will not spend more than 10% of my revenues in marketing. Like that's my rule of thumb for, for me. Um, and then of course there, there is the art of, 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 be, of improvising. So how well are you going to read the uncertainty and prepare, train your brain in order to be ready for large changes? So three things mm. that people, that organizations need to, uh, to, uh, to, manage the, uh, to, to manage work and, and make things happen. Yes. Now, there is, um, according to you, and given the fact that you have been working with organizations as well as individuals how do you see what is the the uh, the main difference in order to train organizations versus individuals in order to make to help them be, be more resilient so with an organization you're dealing with more than one person right and managing one person versus managing a team is extremely different so within an organization, you have the company culture, the company values, and there will be some people in the company that maybe their values don't exactly match. You know, maybe that was never part of their consideration when they joined. Uh, maybe they've grown and they're no longer in alignment, right? But they're still there. Mm. And so as you're dealing with an organization, you have to be very aware that um, it can't just be a, a top-down approach. It has to also be a bottom-up approach. You know, how are you going to get the buy-in of all of your employees? What is the common message? What is the one thing that you are going to get everyone to agree to? And if they're not going to agree to that and be part of the culture change, are you willing to let go of them? Because they may be or may have been a star player or someone that's brought in revenue but if they're not willing to get on board with the direction that your company is going, why would you want them there? They will become toxic and create pockets of, mm. you know, um, rebellion, people who will say yes, but then not do the thing. Right. And so it's going to create a lot of frustration for the people who do want to be on board and it's going to create issues in the terms of your dynamics. It would be like saying, I want to go, um, you know, forward in my boat, but I've got five people rowing backwards mm. and their oars are hitting everybody else's oars. And now we're not going anywhere. We're kind of just in one spot. There's damage and there's, you know, people are yelling at each other. You would never do that, right? In a physical aspect, you would never have five people going the opposite direction, directly impacting the rest of, you know, where you're trying to go as a team. But it's a little bit more, uh, in, insidious and ethereal when we're looking at it from a culture perspective, because you can't touch it, right? It's like the mind. We can touch our brain, but we can't touch the mind. So it, it can be hard to grasp sometimes, but really getting clear on your message and getting clear about the fact that if people are not on board, that's okay. But then that maybe means that there's no, no space for you here. So being, you know, um, I don't want to say the word strict, but being, uh, knowing where your bottom line is, 
mm-hmm. and knowing your values and adhering to them. Because what often happens in culture change is companies violate their own values in order to try to keep everybody happy. But they're keeping people happy at the expense of where they need to be going. And so in the end, it can cause more damage because maybe you don't adapt the organization enough and you end up having to still lay off a significant portion of your workforce, maybe more, because you weren't able to adapt and go into an area that would have allowed those people to keep their jobs, but in a different capacity, right? So as an individual, there's still resistance. You know, even when we choose that we want to change, it's scary, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen when I do that new thing. And we have a lot of um, primitive body functions and, and things to keep us safe, right? I know how it is to work in this environment. So even though I don't really like it and it's stressful, it's safer to my brain in my system to stay here than it is to go and get a new job because I don't know who works at that job. What if the boss is worse than the one I have now? What if I don't like the job? What if they don't like me? I can't do it. And so we have all these what ifs come in. We have, we should also look at that. What if, what if I love my new boss? What if I do a great job? What if I learn more? So somewhere in the middle is reality, right? And at the end of the day, if you can commit to doing your best, no matter what it is that you're doing, if you're washing the dishes, if you're, um, you know, sending an email to the client, if you're going to a meeting, can you show up as your best self? put your best foot forward. And if the answer is yes, go try the new thing. If the answer is no, then maybe you need to spend some more time with yourself about why you're not willing to do those things. And in that process of self-discovery, you know, you start to uncover what are the unconscious behaviors that are driving the person? What are the stories that they're holding, right? So I use um, a framework called answer intelligence And this is something I know you're familiar with as well, but allowing people to have the positive inquiry, asking powerful questions, but being able to answer them as well, right? Because as you're guiding someone through a coaching process or a consulting process, getting them to the next level, you need to also help them understand their own answers and and in different contexts, because different people learn different ways. And we need to make sure that we're well-rounded, right? We get all the perspectives, not just this one, because then that's how we create silos. So what is fascinating is that from one side, we have the natural resistance of the individual. So we all are a little bit resistant to change because our brain is formatted. So it's a biological protection mechanism that we have in our our brain. We have that. So how can we, going with with your hypothesis that if people do not follow, then we, they are they might not be part of the, the 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 culture. So what could be the trigger in order to decide we have done enough to explain this time to explain the change so that this resistance is this natural resistance is lower. So what could be the trigger to decide? You're part of it or you're not part of it. There needs to be something, a rule of thumb in order to decide what is the trigger. Yeah, I think that's going to really determine, that's a great question, Determine, be determined by the company. Mm-hmm. What is their bottom line? What are they trying to achieve? 
you know, how many meetings will they hold before they decide that, okay, now we're taking action. It's no longer talking about it, but we're actually moving forward with this process. Mm. You know, the most important thing to do in the beginning is to explain why, right? Simon Sinek, start with why. Why is this important? Why is this the decision the company has chosen? Why is it impactful for the people in the business? You know, how does it affect them? Because if they don't understand this, they'll come up with all sorts of stories. Mm. Oh, they're bringing in new technology to be more efficient, but then that means that 70% of my job goes away. They're going to get rid of me. I'm being replaced by technology, right? Mm. Um, or, you know, I don't, I don't understand how, how this impacts me. Why should I do it? Why should I change what I've been doing for 10 years because the company now decides they want to do this new thing, right? And so understanding the history of the organization is very important in this process as well. If the company has previously gone through culture change that maybe did not last or did not have the impact they intended, because then you're going to get the veterans who go, oh, it's the flavor of the month, just wait it out and it'll be over, right? So we get this permafrost layer where people just kind of go, yeah, yeah, okay, well, let's see what comes next month. So again, it's about consistency. So what's your why? What are the values you're going to adhere to? How does it impact the people in the organization? Why should they do it? How does it benefit them and their job, their lifestyle? And then from there, what are the repercussions if this is not adhered to, right? Mm -hmm. If policies are not followed, um, be very clear on this. Right. Because if you don't have clarity, then people will go, oh, well, I don't I don't need to do it. Like if I don't do this one little thing, it doesn't impact the whole organization. So they don't understand their part in it. Make sure you explain how each department, each person's role is impacting the overall outcome. And so everyone needs to be on board together. And if it's found that they're not, you know, th then obviously things will go down a different direction. But it's not about threatening, right? It's about buying, getting buy-in, showing the value, and letting people express themselves. Mm. Having those management, you know, the top management will work with the senior management, works with middle management, and it trickles down. Finding your change agents. Who are the change agents in the company? There might be someone who's been there 40 years they, they don't hold a management title, but they're certainly a leader and they have the people's ear. Who are those people? Can you get them on board first so that when, you know, water cooler talks are happening, this person, these people can go, hey, you know what? It's really powerful because I've been here 40 years and I've never seen anything like this. I think it's a good idea. Mm. Now, all of a sudden people are going to go, oh, yeah, maybe I'll try it, right? So it's about, showing people that value and leading them with a desire, right? What is it, how is this going to benefit them? You know, we, we want to lead with the carrot, not the stick. And we also don't want it to be a carrot that's never reached, you know? So positively reinforcing along the process, breaking it down into bite-sized pieces that people can understand. Because as an organization, you've got a lot that's going on. And a lot of dynamics, a lot of things that are going to be moving and changing throughout the process. So regular communication will be key. And having those regular touch points, letting people know how they're doing, how the team is doing, and asking them what they think they should be doing, because you don't know what you don't know. And if you assume 
that your intention has been received the way that you sent it, then that's where we start to get the blocks, right? Because as we know, when you assume, you make an ass of you and me, right? And the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So regularly checking in, asking people what they're doing, how they think that's benefiting the process. Uh, do they have any other ideas? Because then they might come up with something that you can answer and say, hey, you know what? We tried that. This is why we haven't gone down that route. Or that's a great idea. I'm going to review that now with management and see you know, how we might be able to incorporate even an element of it. It's not about taking every single idea. Ultimately, you need to show that you have the capability to make decisions and stick with them, right? But that you are willing to get these ideas. You are open, right? You're demonstrating that resilience by being open and having the willingness to listen. And then when there's a connection, great. When there's a disconnection, you express why. Hmm. In fact, it was super good that the, you you have explained a little bit about in the, the the real homework that organizations should do in order that in times of change they decide who is in or who is out. And it looks like the homework is quite extensive. So there is a moment of self awareness, which you mentioned. It's say validating if in the past did we uh, we, we weren't successful in the in any type of of, of change how was received that back then uh also understanding what are the weakness currently in terms of leadership and maybe the ceo himself has been doing certain things that may not be perceived as that positive that uh, positively then there is a moment of empathizing with people where you kind of help them and you use the, the word communication several times and and i like it because you were saying uh, that we need to communicate with people in the right way that they can understand it. And you mentioned the AQ model. Um, also, th th there was a another part where you were talking about the contribution, because when we feel that we are contributing to the change, we are coming up with ideas, we we feel like the change is me. So why is not the, the CEO who has is just deciding, I'm contributing to something that is, so we feel more, engage in order to be part of the change when we give our little uh grain of sand uh that that and i love that you have clarified that it's not just you are in on or, or out it is a full process that organizations should onboard uh during the times of change and it goes beyond just the traditional change management approaches that mm. I have heard so many that are more about um, thinking that if you repeat the change several times, it will happen, or that you that change should be treated a little bit like a, an advertising agency. So if you put a lot of posters in around the offices, people are going to change. No, it's rather the opposite. The same thing that happens that when we watch TV and we see publicity, we change or we go to the toilet and come back when the, the film is uh, coming back. So that's happening also in organizations. We we know when we are feeling manipulated through advertising for change. So, but it needs to be more a psychology-based approach in order to drive this uh, this change. I love it that you have mentioned so many tools. In order to teach resilience mm. as the traditional mode of, of delivering content, like doing at the traditional training of, Okay, let's have a one or two days training to build resilience. Does it work or not? No, 
<laughs> because if you if you come in, I'm going to use an example that everyone can understand, right? If you want to change your body, you want a physical transformation. Do you think that going to the gym for two days is going to change your body? No, you are not going to go into and have like super ripped arms and a six pack abs and lift a hundred kilos in two days. You will start the process, but you need to maintain, right? So when we, when I see organizations uh, just throwing in a workshop here and there, and they don't have a wider program that is helping to build resilient teams, this is just a box tick. It's something to feel good, show, oh, look what we're doing for you. But then you, again, have this middle level of management who doesn't really buy in, who doesn't embody, doesn't put it into practice. And so nothing changes, right? People might get inspiration and hope the first time. Then the next time it comes around, they're going to go, well, what's the point of this? Nothing's changing at work. You still got this, you know, a-hole in this position who's, you know, not doing anything different. And so why should I do it differently, right? And we, we start to kind of battle these, these mindsets. So it's really about building the um, mindset and having it as a core value that the people you employ are open to new possibility and are making this part of their everyday being, right? How they're showing up at work. So this means that you need to have the managers do that. And so in order to get more resilient, you want to be connected, right? Having strong, positive relationships at work within the team, between different uh, departments, between the management group and the regular employees, you know, having different communities within the organization. This is a sign of a really healthy organization because people build bonds and they're go they're more willing to help each other, right? So we, we want to make sure we have good communities within the organization. Every day should be meaningful, Right. One of the most powerful practices that I coach my individual clients on is to choose one thing that they will accomplish that day. Mm. They are going to accomplish this one task. And if they make the task too big, that has 20, we break it down. One thing, maybe it's sending that email to the client in response that they've been waiting for three days, or maybe it's finishing the proposal, right? Or finishing the the financial part of the proposal, really breaking it down because then you get to celebrate the accomplishment and it feels meaningful. It's not just being a desk warrior, responding to emails and text messages all day. You've actually accomplished something, right? And so as an organization, what's the one thing that you're going to, as a team, accomplish that day? What's that bigger goal you're all working towards that each of you can contribute towards? What's one thing in your individual work task list that you can get done that day and feel proud of, right? Celebrating those wins. Uh, think of it like a, um, a football game, right? If you don't celebrate the goal, then you're just going to get tired before the end of the game. Indeed. But every time you get a goal, what do people do? They have a dance, they run around the field, they're screaming, right? And the, the fans are cheering them. So in an organization's case, the manager, and the rest of the team are those fans, like celebrate those wins at the end of the day, get everyone together in a huddle, like, hey, what did we accomplish today? Let's celebrate what went well, because that's releasing dopamine. And dopamine is the chemical, the neurotransmitter in our brain that is responsible for focus and drive and motivation. 
So before they even accomplish the next thing, when they think about it, some dopamine is released, which helps them to focus and go towards that action. So you want to constantly positively reinforce. You know, learning from experience is really powerful. Organization, regular review uh, and quality assessment checks of their process, of their client interactions, whether it was good or negative, they learn from the process. You know, where can we improve? What worked well in this situation? And um, in the negative situations, there's still something that went well. But where could we improve so that that incident or that issue, that negative client experience doesn't take place again? And you create this learning culture, right? It's not about you did it wrong, you did it wrong, like I'm going to punish you. It's how can we be more aware? Because maybe we don't have enough people. Maybe our system needs to be upgraded. Uh, Maybe we have two different technology systems in the company that aren't communicating properly, and that's contributing to the error. Right. So it's just about working together to solve the issue and find those new opportunities that are lying there Uh, and taking care of yourself. I mean, this is the number one thing. You cannot assist others when you don't have your own oxygen mask on. Right. I work in aviation. What do they tell you on an airplane? They, They tell you to put your oxygen mask on first before you assist others. And then they usually make some joke, choose one child that you love more and put it onto that, right? But at the end of the day, imagine that flight attendant didn't have oxygen and she's running around trying to help everyone else that needs assistance. He or she is going to pass out at some point from lack of air. And so that's the same thing for you. Remember, your health comes first. And some organizations may not like to hear this. However, the fact of the matter is, if you're not healthy and you're not mentally healthy, you are going to be either absent from work physically or you'll have presenteeism, which means you're there in body, but you're not really contributing. Mm -hmm. And so it's much healthier for you to take a mental health day, for you to say no, establish healthy boundaries and take care of yourself first. Because at the end of the day, you are one person in a machine and that organization will replace you, right? It's, we don't like to think that way because we want to create communities and cultures. But if I got hit by a bus, hopefully that doesn't happen. But if that happens, you know, life will go on. Business will still run. Things will still take place. Someone will eventually learn and take your role. Of course, there will be some adjustment, but if you cannot operate at your capacity, what's going to happen? You're going to go home. You're going to be Um, angry with your family. You're not going to be present with them. You'll start getting health problems. And then the situation is much harder to change, right? Once you have the heart attack, your health is compromised for the rest of your life. And so once the organization experiences the heart attack, it's much more difficult to get back into a resilient phase, a healthy, strong phase. So before the heart attack occurs, what are you doing to take care of your employees? How are you making sure that they're physically, health, uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, cognitively taken care of? What are the uh, lead indicators that you know to train your managers on to say, hey, when this starts to happen, we need to pull back. We need to have that conversation with a person because they might be reaching you know, more towards the burnout phase of the resilient cycle. So these are signs to look out for. So a a lot of training I do with organizations is how to train managers to be able to identify those things and how to teach individuals how to identify for themselves 
uh, where they're at on the resilience scale. What are the tools that they can use to help them be fully um, present and able to deal with uncertainty? Because if you're sick, if you're tired, if you're mentally drained, that uncertainty is like the email coming in at 5.30 p.m. All of a sudden there's a big fire. And all it is, is an email with someone saying, thank you, but you just saw the number pop up and you go, oh my God, the world's ending one more email to respond to. Right. And we, we've all been there. We've all been there. Uh, so how can you take better care of yourself? How can you take better care of your employees? Building in a program at an organizational level is instrumental to building a resilient organization. So the answer to the question, is traditional training working for uh, building resilience? The answer is no, because we have said that giving knowledge like definitions, I mean, we are taking the definitions, but we are not going to anywhere with just definitions. Uh, maybe telling stories uh, is a little bit inspirational, but I mean, if without the action, without the recurrent right. practice, nothing will happen. You build resilience, not with a one-off training or a one-off session. You build resilience. You use the word program. And I like the fact that you say program. Program, that means that it's something sustainable, but it doesn't mean that it has to be done by a trainer. It means that maybe it's part of the a trainer. Then there is a little bit of responsibility from the managers, a little bit of responsibility from the employees, uh, because you need to practice. You need to build it together. Now, the other thing that is quite powerful and it needs to be, um, it needs to enter into the heads of most of the leaders of the world is the fact that you don't go, go into resilience training or program when you change is already happening. You need to prepare it because your well being, your mental, emotional well being needs to be prepared way before. So otherwise, when the moment happens, when when there is a lot of change or, or uncertainty and managers, as you say, you say that they are already overloaded, stressed with the last email uh, a story or we don't have the capacity because we are overloaded with so many things to be done. And one of them is to take care of my people. So hell, of course, I'm not going. I will be able to answer to all of the questions about definitions of resilience and tell beautiful stories that I have read in books, but I'm not practicing or helping my people to build resilience, right? Right. And if you read a book, but you don't do anything, you might as well just do this. <laughs> exactly. And that's it. It's like, because it's, it's just knowledge. It's not wisdom. It's not put into practice. Mm. And, you know, um, we need to take our own responsibility and be accountable for our own actions, right? So even if your organization, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, God, my organization is behind the curve, they're not willing to do this, don't abdicate the responsibility to them because you are responsible for yourself. What can you do for yourself to build your own resilience? Because what you do is going to impact those around you. The people around you are all of a sudden gonna go, hey, Ivan, you look younger. What have you been doing? Right. Oh, well, I've been meditating. I've been sleeping. <laughs> I've been taking care of myself, going to the gym again. You know, it doesn't take a lot. And what I like to remind people is when we talk about resilience and, and change and mastering uncertainty, a lot of people are thinking about the really big things, right? Hmm. I want you to focus on the one small thing that you can commit to consistently 
and say, I am doing this every day. I choose this one thing to do every day. Do it every day for 30 days and see how you feel, right? Test it out. Maybe that tool is not the best for you. Maybe it helps incrementally. Maybe it helps exponentially. But you will not really know until you go for 30, 60, 90 days. 90 days is the sweet spot because we, you know, think about a body transformation. Again, it takes physical activity. It takes mindset to, to go to the gym, to eat differently, right? To not have the candy or the alcohol during this period. And you start to feel different. And all of a sudden, you know, it's, if you just go, oh, I'm doing it for 90 days and that's it. Guess what? Those results don't last. If you choose to be the person who goes to the gym for health, then you're going to the gym every other day or every day, whatever you decide, right? So it's the same thing. You know, those rocket ships, when when SpaceX is launching, if there's one degree off in their trajectory, they might not even get through the stratosphere and go up into space. It might explode, right? It is crucial to be on target. So when we're looking at change, that one degree, we, we're not going to go this way anymore. We're going to go way off into the other direction because over time we have exponential growth, right? For, for you finance buffs out there, 1% every day is 37X by the end of the year. Absolutely. So you might think that one thing doesn't do anything, but if you do it consistently, it does a lot more than you trying to do 10 things one time. And what I like is that our brain, in the same way that beliefs and whatever we believe about ourselves, like women are not made for certain jobs or our beliefs about, am I capable of doing something? It has been formatted by society, parents or, or whatsoever. So the same trick can be used. And this consistency of repetition makes that we create reflexes inside of our brain. And then it is stored that without thinking, we are doing certain behaviors. So yes, repetition of the small little steps are going to make it that your brain will activate it whenever it's necessary. So if it is about reinforcing behaviors of, uh, of believing in yourself or trying new things every, uh, every day, if you do these small changes, then when things happen, it will come automatically without reflection, like driving a car without even thinking from the office to to uh, to home. Sarah. So what, what you just mentioned, um, Ivan, if I may, that's called changing your worldview, yep. right? Mm -hmm. And you're starting. So people think uh, success is an end point. Health is an end point, right? I have to do all these things so that I can, you know, have this result. And then I will be healthy and then I will be successful or whatever it is. It's the mm -hmm. wrong order of operations. You know, they're thinking I have to, I have um, <clears throat> to do, have, be. It should be the other way around. Be, do, have. When mm -hmm. I am being successful, then mm -hmm. I am doing this action. Then I will have the result that I'm seeking. So mm -hmm. starting from the, the being, like if you're an Olympic medalist, you are being the, the winner. So you are doing the actions. You are disciplined enough to go and wake up at 5 a.m. and go do your laps and go do the weight training and you know go work with the breathwork instructor to improve your lung capacity. So you are doing all those things because you are being that Olympic gold medal mindset. Mm -hmm. And then because of that, you have the gold medal, Yep. right? So what do you want to be? 
If you want to be healthy, if you want to be successful, if you want, you know, whatever that is, start from that. Because when you change your, your frame of where you're beginning, then the actions become really clear, right? Mm -hmm. But if you think that you will only be successful once you have a certain result, you're just doing the wrong order of operations. And that's why you're constantly chasing the carrot. And so once you change your worldview, then it becomes very easy to operate from the new frame. Sarah, this last bit of part, I was thinking exactly the same and for organizations. So it is the way organizations should. So if you want an organization to be the number one, I don't know, in the United States or in Switzerland, you, you have to make that everybody has already the, that mindset. All of the people in that, in that mindset in organization is called culture. So you yeah. be you are creating a, a, a type of common traits and beliefs in the organization so that you end up being the number one. But of course, if you just put it in the uh, in a wall that you want to be, a, your mission is to be the number one, nobody's going to get inspired. You are not, you are putting the results instead of the being at that moment, very clear for the organization. And that is called culture. Sarah, I yeah. love the discussion and I'm pretty sure that we could continue a little bit more, but <laughs> yes, time yeah. is running. And I wanted to ask you, so how can people reach you? So what is the best way to get in touch with you and have a, even more discussions about pivoting in life, building resilience, dealing with change as an organization or as an individual? Well, thank you, Ivan. So people can find me on the social media platforms, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. You can search Sarah the Pivoter and you'll be able to find me. My full name is Sarah Calmeta, K-A-L-M-E-T-A. And you can send me a message there. We can connect. I can tell you a little bit more about how I work with individuals or organizations to manage and master uncertainty, building resilience. Uh, that's the core of my business. You know, I do high performance consulting and coaching for uh, professionals that want to achieve more and stress less. So if that sounds like something that you've been uh, aiming towards, send me a message. We can certainly have a conversation. I also have um, my own podcast and content on there that you'll be able to access on those different platforms. Uh, you can also go to my website, sarahcalmetta.com, and from there, schedule a 20-minute discovery call and, uh, well, begin your pivot. Sarah, I'm going to put, especially your website, I'm going to put your website below the uh, this video. Thank you very much for your time. It was lovely to speak to you. Really, I love mm -hmm. it. Thank you, Sarah. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Ivan.